Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 20 through 28, the end of that chapter. Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 20. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. As for the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let's pray. So they say that there's two certainties in life, death and taxes, but it's not hard to think of a third Chores. Yeah, long before you file your first tax return, you were doing chores. And as we age, chores seem to multiply kind of like weeds in the yard. This is one of the downsides to adulting. You move at a mom and dad's house, and you have all this newfound freedom to do all the chores. You can no longer forget the trash, and then mom does it for you. And yet, what is it about chores that are so bothersome? I mean, we all have chores that we don't mind much and others that we cannot stand. You might hate doing the dishes, but folding clothes you kind of enjoy. But the most irksome thing about chores is that they're never really done. It's so satisfying to get the kitchen sparkling clean, but then your teenager makes a snack and it's all messy again. You dust, and after a matter of days, you got to do it all over again. Thus, chores well embody the futility of this fallen world, endless monotony and tedious drudgery. And yet there's one chore, it is an ancient and particularly onus, onerous one, that you have been forever freed from, which is a blessed reminder to us just how spoiled we are by the grace of God. So the author of Hebrews kind of just dropped a bomb, for he set forth how, how there has been a change in priesthood, and when the priesthood makes a switch, so the law must also necessarily undergo a change. Since the law is founded upon the priesthood, a modification of the foundation means a remodeling of the house. Thus, the exchange from Aaron to Jesus resulted in the law, which could not perfect anything, being nullified. And yet, when an institution has been around for over 1,200 years, it doesn't go down without a fight. And the saints of this congregation need to be persuaded of such a radical departure 
from the hallowed past, as they themselves are tempted to go back to Aaron. So the author continues to explain and defend the superiority of Jesus and the passing away of the Levitical order. And to his previous reasoning, he adds the fact that Aaron became a priest without an oath. They were ordained and installed into office, not by an oath from God. But why is this significant? Well, oath here links back to chapter 6, when God added an oath to the promise given to Abraham. And this oath, stacked upon a promise, equaled two unchangeable things in order to show the permanent character of God's purpose. The Lord's oath, then, amounted to something that was imperishable, enduring, and immutable. From Aaron's, uh, for Aaron's priesthood, then, to be oathless, this means that his priesthood is changeable, temporary, and non-permanent. What doesn't have a divine oath has a shelf life, an expiration date, a lifespan. Without an oath, God never intended the Aaronic order to last forever. His design was for the Aaronic priesthood to be seasonal, here for a time and then no more. And as an oathless priesthood upon which the law was founded, this points to the reality of conditionality. That is, the Levitical priest served in an office based upon the condition of their obedience, which was, writ- which was written all over the pages of the law. From Exodus to Deuteronomy, the Lord repeated over and over how the priest must obey every little law and each ritual. Working in the Lord's holy tabernacle was a little bit like laboring in a nuclear reactor. One mistake, and radiation could break out and kill. Nadab and Abihu are perfect examples of this. They brought creative incense, which was not commanded by God, and they were struck down on the spot. Only through thorough obedience and total conformity to the whole law did the priests remain in office. And if an office or an institution is conditioned upon human obedience, then it's kind of the epitome of the non-permanent and the temporary. God's oath ensures constancy. Oathless human obedience clinches it as fleeting and transient. Of course, in stark contrast to this, is the oath given to our Lord. Jesus received his priesthood by an oath from the Father, and the author again quotes Psalm 110.4 as clear testimony to this oath-bound priesthood. God's oath spelled out that the Lord would not change his mind and that Christ's priesthood was forever. Yet the emphasis of the point here falls on the result of the oath. Because Jesus has the oath, this makes him the guarantor of a better covenant. But what does it mean that he is a guarantor? Well, a guarantor is the same thing as a surety. So what's a surety? Well, a surety is a technical term and office, which isn't the exact same thing as a mediator. A mediator simply acts as an intercessor between two parties. A surety, though, takes upon himself the legal penalties of one party 
if they are found delinquent. Today, a surety is similar to a cosigner upon a loan. That is, if you take out a mortgage with a bank and you fail to make the payments, the bank comes after you. But if you have a surety, your default means that the bank goes not after you, but after your surety. You are delinquent, you are non-solvent, but the surety pays the price for your failure. In a criminal situation, you would break the law, but the court punishes your surety in your place. For Jesus to be our surety, then, means that we are in a state of demerit and delinquency. Ours is the guilt for law-breaking. Ours is the debt to justice. Impurity stains us inside and out. We are non-solvent with respect to the demanded righteousness. The bill of justice stands against us, and the collector of justice and wrath has our name upon his clipboard. But with Jesus as your surety, he legally paid the entire penalty for you. The mortgage was ours, but the bill was paid by Jesus. Execution is what we deserved, but Jesus died in your place. Meritorious righteousness was demanded, which we didn't have a penny to pay for, but Jesus paid it all for you. As your legal surety, Jesus provided everything that you could not do in order to make you an heir of heaven and a child of the Father. As your guarantor, Jesus then perfected you, which the law could not do. Indeed, the suretyship of Christ contrasts blatantly with those that of the Aaronic priest. For the Levitical priest, they were a type of surety in the Old Testament. And yet, by the law, they still could perfect nothing. That is, first, the Old Testament priest did pay the debt of sin, but their currency was animal blood, which had no true value. Their animal sacrifices were a little bit like monopoly money when heaven accepted only gold bullion. Similarly, the priests were to be righteous for the people, but the Aaronic priests, their uh, uh, decent obedience, still was stained and lacked any real merit. Thus, where the suretyship of Aaron couldn't pay the bills for the people of the Old Testament— Jesus' suretyship fulfilled everything that stood against us. Hence, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Because Aaron couldn't pay the real price for sin, because he couldn't fill the obligation of the covenant, the Old Testament law covenant remained unstable, conditional, and sure to fail. But with the condition perfectly met by Christ, by his ideal righteousness uh, for us, through his meritorious blood, you belong to a better covenant and one that's permanent. Resting on his suretyship, your covenant relationship with God is unbreakable. Your reconciliation is finished, final, and forever. You have a standing before the Lord that is firmed and fixed because it's founded upon the work of Christ for you. 
Compared to the changeable and temporary old covenant, this covenant is way better. Now, of course, the author loves to pile up contrast between the old and the new, and so now he continues to add layers. On top of Christ's suretyship, he now he mentions the many compared to the one. Those Old Testament priests were numerous in number. As death kept putting one of them in the grave, another one had to step up to replace the one before him. Indeed, according to one ancient historian, there were 83 high priests from Aaron to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Now, we cannot confirm if this is the correct number, but this figure does work out as this would make the average tenure for a priest to be just shy of 16 years, which is reasonable as each high priest served for his whole life. Nevertheless, why is such a high number, or why is such a high number, a negative? Well, simply put, because men are inconsistent. You need the best possible guy to be your priest, but there's no way to get 83 good guys in a row. We've had 46 presidents in our country, and look how hit and miss they have been. Therefore, this multitude of priests is contrasted with the one. Death multiplied the sons of Aaron, but for the forever life of Jesus makes him the one and only. The eternal life of Christ makes his priesthood then unchangeable and permanent. And being our endless priest, Jesus then is able to save us to the uttermost. If you trusted Christ, if you draw near to God through Jesus, then Jesus saves you absolutely, perfectly, completely. Jesus' ability to save you is total and pervasive. What a line. This means that his redeeming work does not cover 99.9% of what you need. Jesus didn't build the house of salvation and then leave all the touch-ups to you. Jesus doesn't give you a total makeover, but miss one single hair that you have to pluck out. No, his salvation is absolute. And his redemption can be 100 because he lives forever, making unending intercession for you. As one person, Christ is consistent, and being immortal, Jesus never stops interceding for you. And what's this intercession? Well, basically it means to pray, to make appeal for, to submit requests on your behalf. Jesus' uninterrupted intercession makes him seeking and ensuring God's favor remains upon you. It keeps the floodgates of heaven open so that the rivers of spiritual blessings flow unceasingly to you. By his intercession, Jesus basically helps you to pray. Jesus takes your prayers and he carries them up to the Father for you. And then with his supreme love and wisdom, Jesus improves your petitions to make them a sweet aroma to the Father. As you know, by ourselves, our prayers are rather feeble. They can be misguided, untidy, 
and bland. But in his hands, Jesus cleans up your prayers. He seasons our unworthy prayers with his worthiness. We offer prayers that are out of tune and unharmonious. But Jesus remixes them into be beautiful music in heaven so that God's mercy and grace is ever-present with you. Indeed, having one forever priest is ideal, but, but it, this is only true if our priest is the best. If, a sing, if, a single, or if the single priest is untrustworthy and profane, then his tenure would just be tyrannical. One priest is needed, but he must be just the right one. And this objection is anticipated now as the character of Christ is unfolded for us. He says, it's fitting that we have such a high priest. It's right and lawful and proper that Jesus is this high priest because he's holy, innocent, and unstained. Now, these set forth the superior character and attributes of Jesus that qualifies him to be our priest. First, he's holy. Now, this is the supreme attribute of God, and in his reflection, it's the gold standard for human godliness. Such holiness radiates with moral excellence and first-rate righteousness that fulfills every nook and cranny of the law. Meritorious obedience burns brightly in holiness. Second, Jesus is innocent. That means he's free from all guilt. No delinquency or shame can be found in him. No negative moral culpability can be credited to him. There's no mistakes, no errors, no blunders belong to our Lord. The exam of our Lord doesn't have a single red dot upon it. The all-searching law can find no fault in him. Third, Jesus is unstained and undefiled. This means he has no defects or shortcomings. In the Old Testament, the unblemished priest referred to him being free from bodily defects. He wasn't handicapped, had no scars, no lasting injuries. Now, such blemishes symbolized being touched by the common curse, which then made you incompetent to serve within the holy realm of the tabernacle. Our Lord, though, possessed no blemishes. Altogether, then, these three express the sinless righteousness of your Savior and his trustworthy expertise. When it comes to a professional A guy or the professional can be upright and yet not very good as a job. Or he can be an expert and not very moral. In a perfect world, though, you need both, which is what we get in Jesus. His righteousness has no spots and his expertise no defaults. Thus, Jesus is separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. And these two fit together and communicate our Lord's vindication. This separation from sinners doesn't refer to our Lord's earthly ministry, for as Hebrews has said earlier, Jesus took on flesh and blood to become like us in every respect, save sin. 
He was tempted as we are. He suffered like us and way more. To be our sympathetic high priest, Jesus bore our burdens, he walked in our shoes, and he tasted life's bitterness. Yet, after enduring all these tests and ordeals and passing in pure obedience, Jesus was separated from us by his resurrection, his ascension, and his session at the right hand. Jesus' exalted separation vindicated our Lord as the one truly holy, innocent, and undefiled. The fact that we don't see Jesus presently, since he floated to heaven upon a cloud, this is the Father's stamp of certification that he's righteous, that he's holy, that he's perfect. In being ideal, Jesus has no need to do what those Old Testament priests had to do. He's free from their never-ending chore. Indeed, now the author brings up here the daily sacrifices performed by the Aaronic priest. And this refers to the morning and evening sacrifices of the lamb with its accompanying grain and drink offerings. And as we read from Leviticus, these twice-a-day offerings included a special grain offering For the priest, that is, the priest offered a grain offering for himself, and then he offered the lamb and more grain offering for the people. And by these daily sacrifices, which were absolutely necessary, because they were fuel to keep the altar fire burning uh, continually. For as we read in Leviticus, if the fire went out, then the law was violated, And God's presence departed from the tabernacle. Yes, the very presence of God, being with his people and near his people, rested upon these twice-a-day sacrifices for both priest and people. And talk about a tedious chore. Can you imagine having to butcher a lamb every morning and every afternoon? This is more tedious than being a dairy farmer. No breaks, no vacation, no snow snow days were permitted. And this burdensome chore didn't just belong to the priest. For who paid the sacrifices? Who brought the lambs, the grain, and the wine? The people did. The people raised the lambs, grew the wheat, and decanted the wine. The people brought the offerings, and then the priest offered them up. And this was the never-ending chore, constantly repeated, required to keep that altar flame burning so that God could remain near. If the priest slept in, if the lamb pen was empty, if the fire died out, then God would forsake his people. If your covenant life depended on a chore of such drudgery, then your life would not be stable. And yet Jesus didn't have to do this chore. This was not required of him. Now, sure, the demands of holiness expressed in the daily offerings Jesus had to meet, namely to keep that fire ever burning. But Christ had a better way to accomplish what was required here. He had a better fuel source, namely the sacrifice of himself. One, Jesus had no sin, so he didn't have to offer an offering for himself. 
But two, he was the only priest who also became the sacrifice. He offered not animal blood. He didn't burn wheat for smoke. But he laid down his own holy blood. He turned into smoke his meritorious obedience. And Jesus performed this most sacred and precious job once and for all. What the Old Testament priest could not obtain through an endless chore of sacrifice, Jesus won by a single act, perfect and eternal. The daily offerings were like paying pennies on your mortgage, and it doesn't even cover the interest, much less touch the principal. The debt of justice only grew under the Levitical priest. But Jesus paid one lump sum to pay off your entire debt of sin and to purchase heaven for you. And there was still unlimited resources left in our Lord. Thus, by his single sacrifice, Jesus liberates you from that onerous Old Testament chore. You do not have to pay lambs to be killed twice a day. You don't depend upon a pastor to sacrifice twice a day. That is, your forgiveness, your standing before the Lord, does not depend on the weakness of men. Forgetful, sinful, prone to errors, susceptible to disease, and vulnerable to death, these are the frailties of men. And the law appoints such flimsy and dodgy men to be priests in the Old Testament. These flawed and delicate men then make for a rickety and unstable covenant life. They yield a picture of salvation, but they produce no actual salvation. They communicate a model, but not the real thing. Hence the inferiority of the conditional law and the blemished priesthood is exposed for all to see here. To go back to the Old Testament priest and that costly chore is utter folly. It is to exchange hope for despair, to pawn the priceless Christ for ineffective lambs. To leave an absolute salvation for that which cannot redeem. And yet where the law and the old covenant appoints flawed men, in the better covenant, the oath appointed the Son who has been perfected forever. And this past perfection of Jesus refers to his death and resurrection to fulfill all righteousness and atonement. It expresses the benefits of his one sacrifice of himself that is yours forever and is never-ending and always powerful for your own weaknesses. As your covenant surety, as our perfect priest, Jesus then spoils you with his loving grace and his compassionate mercy. Jesus has liberated you from the chore of daily sacrifices, and he enables you to rest peacefully in his finished work. The joy and the relief of a chore completed? This is precious. This is delicious. And this is the restful joy 
that Christ gives to you as a gift. To relax in his one perfect sacrifice, in his enduring intercession, and the supreme holiness of his character. Thus may our faith be in no one other than Jesus. Let us draw near to God only in him. And with our high priest in heaven forever, may we then worship and praise our triune God for a salvation beyond what we could ever imagine. Praise the Father for giving us his Son. Praise Christ for being our holy priest. And thanks be to the Spirit for applying to us the one perfect sacrifice of Jesus for an absolute salvation. Yes, this is what your God has done for you. May you rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. Let's pray.